0: morning, everybody. All right. Well, as Taylor said, uh, my name is Prentice. I get the privilege to be the lead pastor here at Bethany West Seattle. Uh, and we are going through a series called One Another. Uh, and again, this is a series that I feel like is so timely uh, and so important because uh, of the day and time that we live in right now. Uh, it was so much Uh, chaos and and division and and polarization that's happening, not just even in churches, but in our families and and in our neighborhoods, that uh, this series on one another is a reminder of how God is calling us to live with others, with strangers, with people that might be different than us, people that might vote differently than us, people that might look differently than us. So this series is all about how God wants us to treat, love, and and be in relationship with others. And so uh, this is week two, uh, and we'll be going over this idea where not only Jesus, but Paul says to bear with one another. What does it mean for us to bear with one another? And and today's text comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6, but before I get there, Uh, Again, if you are new-ish, if you've been around our church for, uh, well, really two years or so since this pandemic or even right before, we just want to invite you to our lunch. Uh, It is a catered lunch downstairs. Uh, If you're watching online, you're welcome to join us as well. So good morning to you as well, watching online. Uh, And it's just a time for us to just get to know each other and to uh, just learn a little bit more about the church while sharing a meal together in, uh, in community. Uh, So again, really want to make sure that you know about that and join us if you can. So our text again comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. And for the reading of God's word, if we can all stand as I read this, it says this. It says, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of a calling to which you have been called with all humility in gentleness, in patience, bearing with one another, in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and the Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. God, we thank you. That you've created all of us so differently and so uniquely and so wonderfully. We thank you for the way you love us as individuals. And God, may we take that love and love others with it. That we may not hurt others. That we may not uh, turn our backs on others just because they disagree. Just because they don't see the things the way that we see it. And so, God, may we uh, emulate your grace, your mercy, your compassion, the very same mercy, grace, and compassion you've shown to us. May we show that to others. And may we show the world that things can look so different than the way it is now. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. You're welcome to grab a seat. So as Maria and I, my wife Maria is sitting there, uh, hey, we've been talking to a lot of different folks and a lot of friends and a lot of people. And, and we enjoy especially talking with uh, older married folks to, to kind of invest in us and, and kind of walk with us. And what's really amazing is for us to realize that obviously uh, in our marriage, the things that we go through aren't necessarily unique to us. Uh, that a lot of other people, not just marriages, but in friendships and relationships and roommate situations, very similar things relationally. And and one of the things that we've learned is that uh, many couples uh, have shared that there was a a season in their relationship. Okay, Maybe it was in their dating relationship where it was a phase called uh, they can do no wrong phase. Are you familiar with that phase? And maybe, again, maybe it's in a relationship, maybe it's in a friendship where you have now formed a new relationship and, and you believe that the person next to you can do no wrong. And, and, and maybe that has faded away for some of you uh, or, or maybe it's still there. And so when Marie and I were first dating, we were in this uh, you can do no wrong phase of our relationship. And one thing I've also heard other people say about that phase in life, in their relationship, is that, but there is one moment where that is shattered. And when it is shattered, it's a make or break situation. And I know that I've done my fair share of shattering the belief that I can do no wrong, believe it or not, I know that I've done that, but I still recall the day that things changed for me as far as she can do no wrong. I may hear this, I may get it later, but let me just share this story. We were at her house at the time, and this might be, you know, too much information, but I, but I remember having this conversation, and I remember seeing something in the house. And, and really, many people would call this controversial, or even threatening to a relationship to disagree on this particular worldview. And and what I saw kind of blew my mind, and it was this, and maybe many of you can understand this, she was a believer in the philosophy that the toilet paper should roll under and not over. And, And I don't know about you, and I don't know why this bothers me so much, Uh, Every time I came over, I would flip the toilet paper because it was coming under and I'd flip it over and put it back in in my passive-aggressive way. And and the next day or a couple days later when I'd come back, somehow it would have been changed again. And so I felt like we were going through this subliminal, not really talking to each other, but being passive about flipping the toilet paper, you know, this way and that way. Uh, and, And obviously that's a silly illustration of shedding light in how many of us in life think for ourselves. And it's this, that many of us, we love familiarity. It's what's familiar to us. And whether it's toilet paper, whether it's people that you hang out with, whether it's food that you eat, maybe it's a routine that you have in the morning. Regardless of what it is, it's the human condition. All of us sitting in here watching online, we love familiarity. It's comfortable. It's safe. We long for it. And and, and I want to say this, we can agree that familiarity isn't a bad thing. Isn't all a bad thing, right? Sometimes, and many times, familiarity, what's familiar can be a good thing. The feeling of safety when you see familiar faces. I remember when I first went on staff at Bethany, the larger scale Bethany of all six locations. There's about 60 staff. Uh, And my first day, I was going through the hallway of doing paperwork, of doing onboarding orientation. I remember being so nervous Because I didn't know a single person in this huge church with this huge staff. And as I was going down the hallway, at the end of the hallway, uh, after passing so many strangers, uh, I had to connect with the finance director to go over some paperwork. And as soon as I opened the door, uh, it was a woman named Heather who I went to middle school with. And I hadn't seen her since, and, but we recognized each other. We knew each other's names. I didn't put it together because her last name had changed because she got married, and so I didn't think anything of it. But when we saw each other, we're like, Prentice, Heather, oh my goodness. And suddenly, in my nervousness, of, everyone was nice, everyone was welcoming, but even so, in my own nervousness and anxiety of not knowing a single soul, there was a safety and just seeing familiar faces. And maybe you feel that too when you go out to new places, to new neighborhoods, new stores, new restaurants, seeing that familiar face. Or maybe it's the feeling of goodness when you have familiar smells and, uh, and taste. You know, I know that we're in fall. And so for many of you, uh, does the words pumpkin spice latte do anything to you? And for many of you, it does. It reminds you of fall. It reminds you of, uh, you know, Starbucks and coffee and the weather changing. And, and, and for me, uh, when it's summertime, there's these uh, Korean cold noodles. Sounds weird. But whenever I eat that, it reminds me of home on a really hot summer day with my mom cooking. Maybe for you, it's a hot soup in the wintertime. But there's something about familiar tastes and, and, and smells that is pleasant. That is good. And maybe, maybe for some of us, it's this feeling of uh, nostalgia when we go into familiar places. The other day when Maria and I were driving, she said, you do such a dad thing. I'm not even a dad, but you do such a dad thing every time I drive. And dad, correct me if this is true or not. And I said, what is, what is, a, what is a dad thing that I do while I drive? And she says, you point everything out. Is you like, oh, that's where I grew up. Oh, that's where the store was, and that's the name of this, or that building over there was fun fact. And, and I didn't know I did that, but there's something about these familiar places where I just want to share that. Because oftentimes it's a good memory, or maybe it's a memory, or a bad memory, whatever it is. Like I want to share that, that memory, that nostalgia with her, and, but apparently it's a dead thing. But familiarity isn't always a bad thing. Oftentimes it's good. But sometimes there are dark sides of familiarity as well. Sometimes we go back to relationships, romantic or platonic, because it's familiar, no matter how toxic they can be. We go back to destructive habits because they're familiar. And there's dark sides in our and there's a dark side in our current moment that is not only destructive to ourselves and our own souls. But it's been destructive to our society, our country, and and dare I say, our world. And it's this the dark side of familiarity is when familiarity breeds contempt for the unfamiliar. The dark side is when the familiarity breeds contempt for the unfamiliar or simply that which is different. In other words, when we gravitate to what is familiar, we all do that, and it's not a bad thing, but it becomes a bad thing when we do it while criticizing, while judging, excuse me, while villainizing, while devaluing, while dehumanizing people that might not think the same as you, that might possess attributes that are unfamiliar to you. Those that might look different, those that might speak different languages, those that might even have a different belief in a God or no God at all. For those that might choose to love differently, for those that might vote differently, worship differently, who live in different aspects of socioeconomics just because many of those things are unfamiliar to us, the danger of that is when we show content as if what we have is nothing but fact, nothing but the best, and everything else is secondary or less than. Now, I know my example of the toilet paper is, is silly, but I've seen these things come to true in real life, where there's divisions and polarizations and cutoffs, emotional cutoffs, because of certain disagreements. I have friends. No, I know friends personally that have gotten married during COVID. Those friends also have gotten divorced in COVID. I've seen families and friendships just fall apart, just unravel. I've, uh, I have a friend also who his dad didn't come to his wedding because he refused to wear a mask that was required for the wedding. Now, this isn't about a mask. I'm not going there right now. But the point is that they were so divided over it that the dad decided not to show up to his own son's wedding. I've seen people, especially fellow Christians, and I throw myself in this boat as well, say some of the nastiest things over social media. There's a sense of bravery behind this keyboard. And we say things that we would just never say to someone to their face. And I truly believe this breaks the heart of God. To see God's people, to see God's children fight and bicker and be divided over many times trivial things. As we look into Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, the text that I just read, there's a few observations I want to make about Ephesians and really the, the place that uh, Paul is writing to. It's a letter to the Ephesians, which are Christians in this town called Ephesus. And a few observations I want to make is this. First, Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey, which was on the western shoreline of, of Turkey, was a huge city. And it was known as the epicenter of worship, especially the worship of Greek and Roman gods, number one. Number two, due to the geographical location, being on the western shoreline, it was a major port town. People from all over the known world traveled to and from Ephesus. There was trade, there was commerce, and lo and behold, there was so much diversity, not only in ethnicity, but in religion, in language, in worldviews, in ethics and morale. It was just a melting pot of so many different people and lifestyles. And number three, because of these things, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, decided to bring the good news of Jesus. And there were so many people in Ephesus that were converted to follow the name of Jesus. Because of this melting pot, because of this diversity, because of this uh, pluralism in worship of several different types of gods, that is what intrigued Paul to come to Ephesus right around the mid-50s A.D. uh, and plant churches and to uh, tell people the good news about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so, as he left and continued his missionary journey, he was arrested back in Rome. And while he was in Rome, this is probably about five or six or seven years later, in the mid 60s AD, he hears word that in Ephesus, the place that he had recently been to in the last five years, and saw people, many people, come to faith in Jesus, he heard word that there was a massive amount of division. Not only in the church in Ephesus, but the community surrounding the church as well. And and so Paul, what Paul does best is he's he's basically writing a follow-up letter to the churches that he planted. So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. These are essentially follow-up letters uh, to a crisis that is happening during that time. And so the crisis in this time for Paul was that in the church of Ephesus, there was a massive amount of division and turmoil. And the underlining turmoil and division was the issue of disunity. Of disunity. Because members, <clears throat> because remember the, the, the Christians in Ephesus came from all different walks of life, different Worship different gods, came from different regions of the world, had different worldviews, like I said, and had a completely different lens on what it means to worship, what it means to live a daily life, even what it means. They even disagreed on what to eat and how to eat it. And so it was this problem of disunity that Paul was addressing. The problem was that the people in Ephesus, particularly the Christians, they allowed their familiarity, wherever they came from, whatever the foods they ate, whatever the worldview they had, that was with, that was what was familiar to them, and they held to their familiarity so tightly that things that were unfamiliar were seen as wrong, evil in some cases, blasphemous in many cases, and outright outcasted. People in the Christian community just because the experience that they brought looked so different to what was familiar to them. They had the same problem that we have today. They allowed their familiarity to breed contempt for the unfamiliar, for those that did things just a little differently. And Paul's word to uh, this church in Christy says this. He says in verse 1 of the verse that we just read, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So he's going to the church in Ephesus and he's saying, Well, wait a minute, you have forgotten what it means to now follow Jesus. To follow Jesus is to do things very differently. You're used to living one way. You're used to pursuing some things. But now, as you proclaim to be a follower of Jesus, that life must look different. And so he says, as a prisoner of the Lord, because right now, literally, it's not metaphorical, Paul is in prison for the Lord, for sharing the gospel of Jesus. He's in prison. And while he's in prison, he says, I urge you to live a life worthy Of the calling you have received. Excuse me. The word worthy in the original language is the word axiom. And it comes from the word ago. Now, that might be kind of nerd talk. You don't really need to remember that. But essentially, it means to weigh something on a scale. The word worthy, I know that we can spiritualize the word worthy, but the word in the original meaning was this idea think of a balance scale. It's to balance something on a scale. And something that was worthy meant it was heavy. And when the scale dropped, that was worthy. And so he's saying, you got to examine your life, or better yet, re examine your life. And he says, think of a balancing scale. What is it that you are prioritizing? What is it that you are putting on that side of the scale to weigh it so much, to weigh it down so much? And and, and what Paul is saying, my my hope is that what you put on that scale is your love for Jesus And, and, and the new way of life that Jesus is calling you to. What is that? Humility, patience, kindness. But instead, what Paul is pointing out is that instead of all those things, what you're putting on the, uh, on the scale that you deem is worthy, that has weight, or the things that are familiar to you, even greed, because it was a place of trade and commerce. You may even put other gods before the God because of your experience. Maybe you bring your own priorities, your own worldviews, your own theology, your own need for power, your own status. And Paul is saying, you've got it backwards. You're putting too much weight in the wrong things. And the same question is asked of us, what in the world are you putting all your weight in? What do you find worthy in your life? And what Paul is saying is this. In verse 2, he says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another. You see, in the first century world, this was absolutely countercultural. Because Paul is saying, What do you deem as worthy? Well, the obvious answer to what is worthy in the first century is obvious it's power, it's money, it's greed, it's your own priorities. It's your own gods and your own experience. That is what's worthy. But Paul's saying, well, wait a minute. I'm going to say something that's just going to blow your mind. Because what is worthy, what's really worthy, is not those things on the scale. As a matter of fact, what should be heavier on that scale is not those experiences or priorities that you bring, but it's these three things. He says, be humble, the very opposite of what the world thought was worthy. Be completely humble, Paul says. Be gentle. I can imagine people are saying, what are you talking about, Paul? This is a time where power is everything, where victory and winning is everything. And yet, Paul, you're coming in here and you're telling me that what is more worthy, that has more weight, is not the power, greed, and money, but actually it's humility and gentleness. And patience? I mean, that is completely countercultural. And at the end of the day, he says, with all those things, bear with one another in love. The commentator, Andrew Lincoln, who's a famous scholar of Ephesians, he says this Bearing with others means fully accepting them in their un- uniqueness including their weaknesses and faults and allowing them worth and space. You see, the word to bear is this Greek word, aneko, which is this original, Greek is the original language of the New Testament. And the word aneko really means to endure. It's to what other, in other places in the Bible, says long-suffering. To Literally, to suffer long. And the problem with our culture today and our society is that we're unwilling to endure. You see, when we go to our echo chambers, because we do that, what's easier in life for us is to be with people that are familiar to us. That look like us, that believe in the same thing as us, that have absolutely no disagreements as us, that's what's familiar. And so we go to that echo chamber. There's nothing to endure there, that's easy. Or what we do is we cut people out of our lives. And in family systems theory, uh, Bowenian theory, uh, there's these eight principles. And one of those eight principles is literally called emotional cutoff. Because the psychologist Bowen understood in family therapy, or in family systems therapy, that this isn't oftentimes a human thing to do, is that when things get uncomfortable in a relationship, whether again in his context when he's talking about a family dynamic he's saying it is easy for people to just emotionally cut themselves off and the reality is if we're not seeking echo chambers the very same people that you know believe in the same things as so us there's no disagreements there's nothing to endure if we're not doing that we're doing the other thing where we're just cutting people out of our lives for what for having disagreements now, there's another sermon to be had around boundaries and self-care, uh, and I'm not going there, so don't, don't hear me wrong. Those are real things that we need to consider. I'm just not talking about that today. This morning, what I'm talking about is our culture where we easily just give up on endurance. Endurance. But what if we decided to take a different posture? What if we decided, uh, as this word "anecho" truly means, to endure with others? Guess what? It will be messy. And, and guess what? It will, there will be hard conversations. And, and guess what? It will be very uncomfortable. And guess what? It's going to require a lot of uh, emotional endurance. But guess what else? This is what God has called us to do in a life of so much division and chaos for us to be the light, to be the beacon of hope in the midst of all of that. But what that requires of us is our willingness to endure. And for what? For the sake of unity in love. And I've said this before that unity doesn't just mean that everyone agrees and everyone's on the same page. Again, that would be super easy. In fact, if you have that right now, my guess is that you've put yourself, whether unintentionally or intentionally, in an echo chamber. But as you take an inventory of the friendships you have, do, are there people that think differently than you, that believe things that are differently than you, that look differently than you? My, my hope is the answer is yes. Because we need to believe as followers of Jesus that if we truly believe that all humanity is created in the image of God called the Imago Dei, that no matter what they believe, that person has something to offer us. And it's something that we would never get if we completely cut them out of our lives. And so what we need to believe, first of all, is that, well, we need the person. Well, what does that take? That takes humility. Well, strange. That's what Paul says. He says, in order to bear with one another, you need to be humble. This isn't being self-deprecating. This isn't having no confidence. This is saying that, wow, no matter what, no matter how much we disagree, you have something to offer me. I can actually learn from you. And you can learn from me. How beautiful is that? Well, then he says we need to be gentle. Gentle. Like I said, man, I've seen so much anger and hatred and and even verbal, well like violence on, on like YouTube and like social media and, and I've seen people go at it, like literally go at it on, on on these comment sections, physically threatening each other. I'm like, what is going on? And Paul says we need to be humble. The other person could teach us something. We need the other person. The other person is created in the image of God. You have to believe that. We have to be gentle. Gentle doesn't mean weakness. As a matter of fact, it means strength. Remember, we talked about this before. The word gentle is the word praus in Greek. And it's the word gentle uh, describes a war horse in the first century. And the reason why it describes a war horse, a stallion, is that because of all of the horse's training, that when they go into battle with arrows and swords and violence coming at them, they don't just react to everything, they stick to their training. And and so gentleness actually requires strength. Because if I was that horse, it's easy to say, you know what? Well, forget you guys, I'm running out of here, I'm swiping at you guys, I'm biting, I'm whatever it takes, I'm getting the heck out of here. But it takes strength for that horse to say, you know what? Yes, these things are happening, but I have to go back to my training. And for many of us, not only do we need to be humble in the fact that there's people that we can learn from, that God loves them just as much as God loves us, but we need to be gentle. No matter how much people disagree, no no matter how much people even insult you. And believe me, I've gotten this too. And I'm not always good at being gentle. It doesn't mean be a doormat. Jesus was never a doormat. I would never encourage that. But I'm saying that there's a different way to respond evil than with evil. We need to be gentle. We need to be patient. And with those things, not only these three things, but these are the things that Paul points out, that we can bear with one another, we can endure with one another. One of my favorite pastors, retired pastors, his name is Tim Keller. He wrote this in an article. He says, "The way I have put says the way I have put it is that faith is often subordinate to partisan politics and political ideology with the latter being the prism through which too many Christians interpret the former. Too many Christians are characterized by their tribal commitments rather than an understanding of justice and human teleology. I mean, basically what Tim Teller is saying in a very smart way is that many of us Christians, we've reversed where we put our weight. He's saying we put our weight in politics instead of justice. We put our weight in, in our priorities and our own life experiences and our lens and what we like and what we're familiar with. Instead, we need to put more weight on who God has called us to be, how God has called us to be. And the way we do that is more patience, more humility, more gentleness. Then the world will know. Then the world will know that Christians were. We do things differently, and we want to offer that hope to others. Because again, week after week, I I, I got to be honest with us sometimes, and, and and I am in that boat too. Many of us Christians, we we fail to exemplify the light of Christ, and I get it. It's hard. And believe me, unity uh, that Paul is talking about does not mean just tolerating all things. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. There are things that we as Christians, we believe and are non-negotiable. I believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. That for me is non-negotiable. And I believe the, the commandments that God gives us, love God, love others, that sums it up. And so there's, so hear me, when we talk about unity, oftentimes people use the word unity to manipulate the situation, and to manipulate the people, and to really, for the oppressors to continue oppressing by, by this fallacy of, we need to be united, But do not mistake unity with uniformity. We don't just hop on every bandwagon. We believe in Jesus, the hope of Christ, life everlasting, and that God wants all of us to experience that same hope. So as I invite the worship team back up, I give us a chance to reflect. Reflect on what is familiar to you. What is comfortable to you? And on the other side of that familiarity, are you pushing the others out? Are you outcasting? Are you judging? For me, the answer is yes, yes, and yes. But that's something we need to name and something we need to repent of. Repent just another way of saying, God, I give it to you and turning a completely different direction, repentance. I know it's a kind of a churchy word, and we don't like it, but it's something that God calls us to, is just to really name the ways that we have hurt others and really have hurt God, our relationship with God. And I really believe as God looks around, God is hurt by the way that the world is. But I also truly believe that God is hopeful in God's own people. And that's us. So just for a moment, will you just close your eyes with me? Will you think of the people that maybe you've been a little too hard, a little bit difficult? I know I can name a few. Maybe there's people that you need to offer an apology to Or even forgiveness to. Paul's hope for the church was that they would be united in one with one God, one Christ. That's Jesus. And we as a church, and I don't even just mean Bethany and West Seattle, I mean the church universal, we are under one God, one Christ, and that's Jesus, under one spirit. And whatever familiarity that we are used to, whatever preferences that we have, there's people that we can learn from, to grow with. May we not do evil the way that we see evil being portrayed in the world. May we be different. May we show up differently. May we speak differently. God, we thank you that you've called us to a different life, a new life. Literally, you say uh, you've given us a new life, that we have died and we have resurrected with your spirit. May what we believe match what we do and say. Help us to bear with one another, to endure. And yes, it's messy. Yes, it's complicated. But help us to, as a psychologist, Brene Brown says, help us to stay in the game, stay in the arena. And choose love. And choose Unity choose peace, teach us. In your name we pray, amen and amen. Let's continue in response with worship.